So in my mind, when I pictured what kind of introduction I was going to do for this episode, it was this creative and wonderful, complex, layered, hilarious introduction with sounds and music, similar to the one that I did with Frank Ostaseski, which is also about death. It's a great episode. But time has passed, as it does, and it is now the day before I'd like to publish this episode, and I am in Los Angeles in a parking lot using my handheld recorder to introduce this episode. And this episode is about death. And death is the inevitability, the great inevitability. It is the end of our life. What happens next is up for debate. But let's assume that this is it, just for the sake of practicality. What you do during your time here matters because you are going to die. And everyone you know is also going to die. My mom's going to die. And my son is going to die. And my best friend's going to die. And I'm also going to die. And you're also going to die. And I was thinking about this kind of hilarious movie trope where the bad guy is standing over our hero, maybe holding a gun to him and says, prepare to die. Right? And really, that is what today's episode is about. It's about preparing to die. It's amazing how often I can live life just completely forgetting the fact that this is all temporary, that we're basically on borrowed time, and that I'm going to die, and that could be it. Earlier this year, my father passed away, and he didn't prepare to die. And it's been months, and we're still cleaning up the mess, trying to make sense of it, trying to put together the pieces of his life. Preparing to die not only helps everybody around you But I think to hold death in kind of a sacred space in your life can really change the way you live and can change the way you interact with other people. And so although there's nothing really fancy about this introduction, this is really just an introduction to a fantastic conversation I had with somebody who also had to deal with a parent dying and wrote a great book about preparing to die. It's called A Beginner's Guide to the End that she co-wrote with another fantastic upcoming guest, B.J. Miller. And so, without further ado, here is the conversation I've had with Shoshana Berger called Prepare to Die. Is there anything you don't want to talk about? I'm a pretty open book. Okay, perfect. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the program. Thanks for coming. You are the first guest to actually come to my home turf. It's pretty cool turf, I have to say. This is an incredible little space you've created here. Thank I you. I instantly feel comfortable because it's so scrappy and homemade and and yet polished. I almost got homemade on my knuckles instead of well-made. I like to start this way. And this can be as big or as small as a question as you'd like. But who are you? Oh, God, who knows? Still figuring that out. I just turned 50, and I'm still figuring that out. I feel like my life's work is to make useful things for people. I often feel like I just don't have the instruction manual. This might sound familiar to you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, and the funny thing is, is that I never read instruction manuals. I just think they're deadly boring and awful in the way that they're presented, but I'm craving that like transcendent instruction manual for life. And so I think I've spent most of my life trying to create that or, or asking people questions in search of that. I love that. 
don't worry, I'm working on the instruction manual. That's that's the book Thank I'm working God. on. Yeah. It has little doodles too. It should be more fun than most. The book we wrote has little doodles too because we wanted it to not feel like a morbid text. It's not easy to write a book about death and make it feel animated and full of life. And so we hired this amazing illustrator, Marina Luz, who brought our ideas to life. And it was an interesting process because you'll appreciate this as a designer. In the beginning, uh, she was taking the ideas very literally. And, you know, the, the, the literal definition of illustration is to is to illustrate, to bring to life the concept. But what we were looking for was something that took the concept and kind of blew it open and made you take like three different cognitive leaps. So what we wanted to do was take a a more conceptual leap with the illustrations where, as you would see in The New Yorker, where that cartoon makes you go three different ways and it kind of breaks open the funny part of that interaction in a, in a really deep way. We wanted her to to kind of represent the idea without telling people what the idea was. So I think in the chapter opener for grief, you just see a dress hanging on a hanger in the closet. And it's that moment where you think about that's mom's dress and we had to go clean out the house and we had to smell mom's dress and we had to see mom's dress and it evoked mom in so many ways that we never imagined. And that's a distillation of grief. But that's not immediately what you think of when you say illustrate grief. Yeah, I missed that because I listened to it on audio and now I feel like I missed a huge part of what you guys were making. Oh, I should have brought you a book. No, it's okay. The reason why I didn't have you and BJ on together, besides this place is very small, but it's because this program is really about you and your whole unique personal story. And I was wondering just for us, if you could, it's not like your life started at grief. You had a big full life before that. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your life before it was interrupted. What what major events helped shape you into the person that you were when you did have to start confronting what what it means for you and for your loved ones to die well first of all let me just say that's such an honor to be asked thank you because so much of who we are in the world becomes identified with our work everyone has a backstory right so thank you for asking mine is that i grew up in berkeley i was the kid of like a hippie Jew and a kind of conservative Jew. Um, <laughs> Berkeley in the 70s when I grew up was bananas, just open air asylum, like people streaking naked through the streets and key parties and hot tub drug parties and, you know, crazy town. And um, my parents had a really rotten marriage, didn't last. They divorced when I was 13. Um, and I was like, really overly identified with my dad. My dad was a professor and he was a man of ideas and I was just kind of drawn into his world. And he was the kind of walking encyclopedia that you could ask any question and he would have an answer. That was so appealing to me. So I spent a lot of time just in his aura, 
trying to get as close to him as I could, but he was not the kind of person you could really get close to. Mm. He was kind of a stoic, insular intellectual. And so a lot of my identity formation was around like worshiping this man. I ended up a lot more like my mom, which of course is hilarious and what ends up happening. (laughs) But he's the one who died and he's the one who um, I was a caretaker for. That's the interruption you're talking about. And the irony of the way that he died, it's like that great saying, man plans and God laughs. My dad spent his entire life collecting information, like reading four newspapers every morning and just voraciously sucking up as much information from the world as possible. I think he was as schooled in like Shakespeare and Roman history as he was in biomechanics. So what happened to him was that he lost his mind in the end. He he just suffered a long and difficult death, slowly losing his faculties to dementia. And that was a particularly painful thing to watch because it was what he identified as. It was who he was in the world. He was basically a walking brain. The moment for me, the way it cracked open the universe for me was that, you know, there's this notion of practicing non-attachment and we're going to sound like very Bay Area right now, but my dad was so attached to that identity that to see that rested away from him was really painful. And it was a real lesson for me about not getting too attached to that those kind of identifications like I am a writer I am a you know deep thinker I am a this I am a that it's like no I'm kind of just a person who's going to die at some point and people aren't going to remember me for anything that I think is important people are going to remember that I cooked them a meal once or that I sang them a song before they went to sleep that's what people remember, you know? So for me, it was a real lesson in not getting too attached to the kind of superficial identity that we get attached to. When did you know that you were actually on the downward slope? Like when did it, my dad died this year. It's tricky because I feel like the doctors know they're dying way before the family does. And the doctors are trying to tell you, but it, I watched the movie Endgame as well. And it, it, everybody wants that miracle and everybody wants that extra month, except, you know, your dad did have a very slow, um, I don't know what the right word is, unraveling or... Mm-hmm. That's a good word for it. What was the process like to, to start stepping into the like reality of it all? Well... I'll tell you, it's something we talk about in the book, which is that I think a lot of people end up doing a lot of grieving before death because my father, as I said, was losing such big chunks of himself. And we were grieving those. We were grieving the loss of his mind. We were grieving his loss of identity. We were grieving when we had to take his keys away and he couldn't drive anymore. We were grieving when 
he couldn't really make a sentence anymore. He couldn't feed himself. Still, we didn't think of him as dying, as you suggest. You know, I think his doctors were kind of would come in in this chipper way and say, you know, has he tried doing yoga and how's his diet? Let's try to improve his diet. And we were like, are you fucking kidding me? He, this man is not able to function anymore. This is not about yoga and diet. And I, I did feel like no one was really leveling with us. Did you feel kind of gaslit? Yeah, Yeah. I did feel gaslit. I felt this, you know, this man is dying a slow death and nobody's brave enough to say it's time to start grieving. I mean, it's time to start letting go of who you knew your dad was. He's he's not the same person and he's not going to return. Yeah. And nobody said that. Everyone was just trying to find a cure and it's an incurable disease. I'm, I'm sorry. I see that it's been a hard year for you too. It's been really hard. I didn't, you know, I know so much of your story is about the caretaking you had to do, which is superhuman to to caretake for someone and my dad's death was just complicated nobody he wasn't talking to the other two kids well there's actually three other kids but one of them he completely denied so but he wasn't talking to the other two i was the, the only child he was talking to but his wife couldn't give up any of the caretaking responsibility you know it was like her space in the world and so and it just, it was just ugly. Like I remember talking to Frank Ostaseski. He kind of called me out. He's like, you know, everybody wants a good death. And I'm not so sure that that matters so much. But my dad didn't die a good death. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not even convinced that he lived a good life. But he clung on, you know. You notice this kind of, with some people, you notice this natural letting go. And for me, it's always felt like, oh, wow, like the body is preparing to die and it's sending the right chemical mixture to this person to really go. And my dad fought it all the way. Mm. He had a multiple myeloma, I think it's called, which is a death sentence. It's like there's nothing you can do, really. You can do chemo, which he did, but... He refused to even accept it. I remember hanging out with him and his wife would say, you're dying, John. And he just, it was like in one ear and out the other. It just wasn't pretty. He, you know, like, just like you talked about in your book, like he didn't do any of the stuff. Mm. He didn't do any of it. He didn't prepare for his death. The man didn't have a memorial. Mm. Because there, everything was fractured. He wouldn't let the two other kids into his life. I had no idea what was going on. His his wife is under so much stress that I don't even think she had the faculties to to put a memorial on or who to invite. It was he kept he died with all his secrets, mm. every single one. And I the first thing I did when he died was grab my recording gear and go talk to everyone he knew to try and tell the story of this man that so many people he had kind of done wrong but also kind of people would like smile about it because he was so charming and then it just turned out to be just so disappointing to really get to know all the things he had done you know, he left four he left three women to raise his kids mm. alone wow he was given a trust for his kids and he spent the whole thing 
you know, which was not painful for me because I didn't know about it. It was very painful for my older brother and sister. Wow. Because they were always kind of told, yeah, there's this trust and it's going to help pay your house down and help pay your college debt. And they knew something was up, but I think for them to finally realize like he had not only spent his inheritance, he had spent their inheritance. It was just... That sounds like a mess, Sam. It's a total mess. So like, I don't even think I've grieved it yet. I'm still like unpacking the whole thing. Sure. That's what happens when people leave a mess. And we talk about this in the book. It complicates the grief because you don't have the room to grieve. You're cleaning up the mess. You're processing the mess. You're dealing with all of that that was left in his wake. And I'm really sorry, first of all, that that happened to you because it's hard. And it does. It means that your grief is pushed out a time sometime in the future when it's going to swell up. It's going to, you know, come up like a, a wave when there's room for it. Because right now it just feels like there's just a lot to process, a lot of mess, a lot of stuff <laughs> to just wade through. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's almost like, how could you? How could you live this way? And I wish... My wish for him, and then I guess my wish for myself would would be to make sense of it all, you know, to my son. And you know, like I used to be a meth addict. I've done plenty of awful things with my life, you know, and, and hurt people. But we're creatures of meaning and narrative, and how I incorporated that into my story, how he can incorporate that into his, because it's like we all have this, you know, it's like if you have a really cool ancestor, you feel like endowed with their brilliance and their courage and their fear it's the opposite when you have a really shitty ancestor you know and my i don't want to say that my dad was shitty but he did shitty things and and he was he was also lovely but he was complex and he left us with the mess yeah yeah and i mean we human monkeys are messy like even if other people had more high functioning parents there are all kinds of emotional dark places and messes that people leave, you know, they leave grudges, they leave, you know, wounds that they never close, they never heal, they ignore their kids, they don't reconcile with them, they make them feel like shit. Like there's so many ways in which we can do damage in life and not repair that before we die. And part of the problem is that we live in this culture that's just death denying. And so we don't take that in as an essential life cycle moment to prepare for, to think about, to have conversations about. And when you're approaching a big moment like that, you do kind of want to prepare, right? Like think about how much you prepare to have a kid or, you know, ideally you prepare to have a kid (laughs) or you prepare to go on a big trip, right? Like you kind of want to know what language is spoken there? What's the currency? How do I get around? You kind of want to have a map of the terrain before you go there. And instead, we're so phobic about death that we just put it over there in the corner. We don't look at it. We don't talk about it. And then it becomes really exotic and unfamiliar and something that it makes us shudder the, the moment it enters our brain. And what that means is that it doesn't 
force you to do any of that reckoning about your life. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the finiteness of life is that we don't have all the time in the world to do that repair. We just don't, right? So if you have a fight with your kid in the morning and then you get in your car and you have a colossal accident, that kid is going to be left with that fight as the last moment that he had with you, right? Every moment is a moment that you can repair throughout life. Um, and for some people, that's just not possible. Some people just can't can't get there. Your dad couldn't get there, it sounds like. And in some ways, my dad couldn't get there either. You know, my dad never accepted his death. He never talked about it. What are the things you wish he had done? I wish that he had been enlightened, or I guess the kids say woke enough to... <laughs> to have a conversation with us about what he wanted his end to look like. You know, like sat my sister and I down and said, look, if I can't recognize you guys and I'm completely out of it and you need to feed me and take me to the toilet, this ain't a quality life anymore. This is not how I want to live. This is not how I set out to walk the earth so if that kind of thing happens, here's the kind of treatment I want, or here's here's how I want to, here's where I want to be, here's who I want to be around. The thing is, people just don't know to have that conversation. And so that's part of what we try to walk people through in the book. You do have agency at that time of life. You can lean into it. You can say what you want. You can tell people, you know, like, this is who I am, and I want to feel like I'm retaining a sense of that until I die. I want my identity to be honored until I die. And just being able to say that to people who love you is such a relief. They know, they know who I am. They know how I want to be treated. And they're going to speak for me if I can't speak for myself. Just knowing that's out in the world doesn't matter what paperwork you do. doesn't matter if you do a will. doesn't matter if you do any of that other stuff. But just so that you feel like you've had some agency in it and the people around you feel like they've had, they understand what you want, that unburdens everyone. You wrote a book that a lot of it is just very practical aspects of, of dying. And it's very, it's not abstract. It's very literal. Yeah. <laughs> and... I was just curious, like, what are the things that you look back with your family and say, God, we really did that right somehow. Like we really showed up for that in the right way. And what are the things that, is your mother still with us? Mm -hmm. That you say, this is what I've, you know, unfortunately we had to pay the price through dad's experience, but this is what I want to bring with me to my mother's passing, which I, can you even imagine it at this point or is it more real or it is very real. In fact, at this moment, she's dealing with some serious health issues. And I sat with her in hospitals and doctor's offices all day on Saturday last weekend. It's like a bad flashback. You remember the trauma. You remember the trauma. You remember how things start feeling out of control, how doctors start talking about this path of treatment and this path and it none of it really 
you know, you don't know you're out of your depths already when they start about talking about tests and treatments. And I do know a lot more about it now. I feel like a regretful expert in death. Like I sitting with BJ, who's a palliative care doctor and learning from him about how to usher people to that door and how to navigate. That's been incredibly useful to me. So, yeah, I mean, my mom doesn't want to talk about it at all, mm. does not want to deal with it. And so I I kind of come in like a bit of a sledgehammer, which is not fair to her because she does she does not want to be in this conversation. And I keep hammering at home and saying, Mom, I need to know, you know, what you want at the end of your life. I need to know what you want that to look like. So my poor mom has just been you know, forced into this conversation. But what it what it's useful in doing is reminding me that what people need mostly at the end is for you to just show up, for you to be there with them, make them feel like they have someone in the world who's going to take care of them, who's going to be their advocate, who's going to say, Mom, I've got this. I'm here. I'm going to take you to these appointments. I'm going to talk to these doctors. I'm going to help you through. I'm going to find a helper for you. Gosh, that's that feels really good. Kind of knowing how to help. How about, you know, I think part of it is you have the patient, right? Who's the person who is going to die. But in a way, I also feel like that you're the patient too. Mm. Um, I did a lot of, like kind of research into caregiving and something astronomical, like 75%, I would say it's the reverse of that. So it's 23% of people say that they're like healthy when they're in an active caregiving role. And so that leaves the majority of people who aren't taking care of themselves and aren't, I think the missing component is that everybody involved is the patient, you know? And so, my mom always says, she refers to herself as the patient all the time. She says, I'm taking care of the patient, you know, whenever she's having a rough day. But how do you take care of yourself or how do you plan to take care of yourself better? Yeah, I would say, how do you plan to take care of yourself better as you, as people around you or people, your loved ones are going to die? I love that, that you're the patient too. I think that's so important to remember. It's really hard to take the time to take care of yourself because, you know, you're not the one on the surface of it who's suffering. And yet there is so much suffering. You know, you're sacrificing in so many ways. You're having to take days out of work. There's a financial cost. You're not attending to your own needs and your own family and your own relationships. There's an emotional cost. You are not taking care of yourself physically. You know, you're not eating well or sleeping well. We're taking breaks and taking walks in nature. There are a million ways in which we become the patients when we're the caretaker. That's such an insightful comment. Again, in this book, we get super pragmatic about it. Like, here are the things available to you. You can get respite care. There is actually a, a, a benefit, a Medicare benefit, where you can call in someone to give you respite as a caregiver, and that person will be paid as a Medicare. That's a ben- Medicare benefit. Um. You can, you know, you can enlist a group of friends to start taking on small tasks so that you're not doing everything, right? 
friends love to help. And sometimes it can be a big management thing, but if you, there's so many apps and like digital solutions now for getting a bunch of people saying, okay, I'm going to do a load of laundry this week, or I'm going to go to the grocery store and get some basics, or I'm going to come and just take care of the dishes in the, in the sink, or I'm going to, uh, you know, take, drive someone to a doctor's appointment and just delegating and distributing the load a little bit can be a huge help. And you forget that people want to help. It makes them feel good. You know, they feel like a saint for a moment that they've done this small task for you. And for you, it can be a game changer feeling like I don't have to do everything. But I mean, just the flip, the reframe that you just talked about is so important that if I don't take care of myself, I will become the patient too. Yeah. You know, and this person is dependent on me. So it is my job to keep myself healthy and whole while I'm doing this extraordinarily demanding work. How is this, I guess, experience of becoming the expert, not only experiencing it, but then saying, you know what, I want to dive in even deeper and write a book about it. How is it informed the way you're approaching your own death? What's important to you? And what are the steps that you've taken, even though you don't plan on dying tomorrow, what are the, the steps that you've taken or plan on taking to aim to die as gracefully as possible? Hmm. Well, that's a big one. And it's a process because we get waylaid and burdened by all of the shit of everyday life, right? The big kind of meta thing for me is not giving a damn about small stuff that doesn't matter understanding that nothing at work matters. I don't care how much stress or how many achievements I'm racking up or, you know, what's asked of me. None of that matters. Not putting things off. Like, if we want to take that trip, we're going to take that trip. If we want to go to the beach, we're going to the beach. We're, we're not putting things off because you just never know. So, for example, I and my entire family moved to Copenhagen last year. We had always wanted to do it. We wanted to get out of Dodge. And so we were like, okay, this is it. We're doing it. And we found a way to make it happen. And I went and worked in Copenhagen and my whole family moved there. And we had this amazing experience of being in a different place, learning different things, being on bikes all year going through seasons we hadn't been through seasons in a long time because we're california <laughs> people lighting candles and eating you know pickled herring and like all kinds of unfamiliar cool things about living in nordic land i don't think i would have been as motivated to make that happen if i hadn't written this book you know everyone fantasizes like oh we're gonna move abroad or we're gonna go get that piece of land and start the commune or we're going to finally create a room of our own at home that feels just like us. And it's hard to motivate and do it. You know, we get so entrenched in our daily routine, but this book really taught me to look up, look up above the skyline, look up into the universe and remember we are specks of dust. We're here for like five minutes. Just fucking go for it. You have nothing to lose. Go for it. Yeah, you really have to be aware of someday because it really never happens. And someday never happens. <laughs> I I, back when I used to use, I had a group of friends of, you know, 
very artistic, creative people, but it was all dreaming and all fantasizing and all, well, someday I'm going to have a YouTube channel and someday I'm going to do this. And it never happened and years passed. And that was one of the attractions when I first got sober was I walked into a room where the artists were showing their work in galleries and the DJs were playing big sets. And it, that's been part of my program of life is to be a doer, you know, not to be a... I love that my dreaming came back because at the end there, at the darkest parts of my life, it was really taken, you know, and I stopped dreaming. I love that I've started to, especially more recently, I've started to dream really scary, courageous, unrealistic dreams. That's awesome. Many of which won't come true because they're so, they're so big. But this one's coming true. This one's coming true. Yeah. You made a podcast. I made a podcast. But I also, I want to be a doer and I want to be a trier. What are the things that you want to do with the rest of your life here? The rest of your five minutes? Mm. Let's see. Write no more books. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have this write the damn book piece of art that you made on the wall. I took a picture of that. It's so great. And I always felt that way my whole life. I've written one book before this and my whole life I felt like, I wanted to write. It all came from my first crush in high school. I was mad, mad, mad for this older senior, and he was a writer. And I remember, I mean, in high school, right, he was a writer. But he was like a very serious kind of spiritual dude, and he like he had this whole entourage of people who kind of followed him. He was kind of a guru even as a senior in high school. And um, he was pretty punk rock and so beautiful and I totally worshipped him and I remember we were on a date like walking through downtown Berkeley and he turned to me at a stop sign and he was like do you write and I just like my whole body just like lit on fire and I was like um yeah yeah I do <laughs> which was a total abject lie but you know I wrote in my journal I wrote bad poems, but from that moment forward, I was a writer. There was no doubt in my mind. It took me a while to get there. I do love being a writer, I have to say. I do love getting in to that zone where you just, you're finding a way to say things that feel like they bring people together in, in that weird like way that music and the rhythm of the universe, like, or when you hear some, when you hear a great poem or when you are out in nature together and you feel this resonance and it moves you, when you can find that in writing, that's a big moment. That feels really good. It's hard to get there in writing. It's way easier to get there in music and other mediums. Anyway, I'm totally digressing from your question because I don't even know really how to answer it, which is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I do really crave getting earthier. <laughs> What's that mean? Um, like, I kind of wish that I knew how to grow things. Mm. I kind of wish that I knew how to build a house. I kind of wish I knew like some actual practical skills. Being a writer is the most unpractical thing on the earth right like when the apocalypse comes i'm the first to go because i i have i mean maybe i can start a fire but i'm not sure you might keep you around it's the the village storyteller <laughs> the village scribe i love it well i would like to 
I would like to be able to grow things. I would like to have some land. I would like to have some dogs. I would like to see my children become whole human beings and fall in love and find the work that makes them happy. That feels really important to me. But, you know, it's it's really not so much about me anymore at this midpoint life. I mean, I'm probably way past midpoint, but I like to think of it as midpoint. I It's, it's not so much about me. You kind of shift over into this mentorship mentality instead of like, like seeking and, and striving. I've been striving for a long time. You know, I had my own magazine that I ran for 10 years. I wrote a couple books. I've been at many different jobs. I've been done a lot of striving. And at this point, I'm kind of feeling like maybe it's time to shift over into helping, mentoring, growing, planting. I really hope you do some of those things. I think learning how to use tools, I mean, I built this, is one of the greatest gifts that I've ever had. I how did, did you learn that? I, I worked construction uh, for a couple of years before I went to school and I learned some tools in, in school and then I worked at a makerspace. Awesome. And I ended up uh, writing curriculum for them. And, you know, the best way to learn is to teach. <laughs> Totally, And so I had to learn how to use the tools really well so I could write how to use the tools really well. There's a place in San Francisco that just opened up. My friend opened it up called uh, Human Made. Nice. They'll they'll teach you how to woodwork or weld or whatever you want. Nice. Well, I mean, the funny thing is is that I do know some of that because the magazine I made called Ready Made was all about do-it-yourself design. So I did make shit and I do know how to do some of that. But like, could I build a house? No. Could I plant a... a garden successfully? Not quite sure. Same. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I love that you learned that. I love that you learned that. And you made a beautiful space here. Yeah. One of the things I've been really striving to do is have more novelty in my life. Mm. Everything I do seems to get monetized somehow. You know, or if I start drawing, oh, yeah, I'll post this on Instagram. Get some dopamine out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and if mm-hmm. I write like, oh, I'll blog that. I've been trying to have more novelty, like things that I absolutely, there's no possible way I could benefit from it any other way than to just enjoy the process like jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. Or. Um, I love that. You know, I, I really, um, when I'm able to afford it, I really want to take piano lessons. Like I never learned an instrument somehow. And I really want to learn how to play piano, even if it's playing piano badly do it man yeah That's and maybe awesome. i maybe i need to be aware of someday maybe i just need to figure out <laughs> how to start i'm not sure a piano will fit in here but maybe a casio yeah maybe a little <laughs> keyboard yeah i guess we sort of answered how you want to live and not waiting for stuff but what are the the biggest takeaways of this project you wrote a book you wanted to share this experience with others and you wanted to get it out as far and wide as you can what are the top things that you wish you could just run around with a megaphone and tell people i would use that megaphone to say wake up people (laughs) be fun to have a billboard in san francisco that just said wake up just a white billboard black lettering wake up i just feel like 
we sleepwalk through a lot of our life. We just, that's comfortable. And waking up is not comfortable. And I think BJ can tell you a story about his wake-up call, his accident that was profound and shifted the course of his life. I think so often we just wake up really late in life. It's like that phrase, youth is squandered on the young. We, We don't realize, one, the damage we're doing to others and to ourselves. We don't realize that we don't have infinite time here. We don't realize that kindness and love are the only way to live on this earth. We think inconsequential things matter. I mean, that sounds really preachy. I'm just realizing wake up sounds like, oh, I have all the answers, which I certainly do not. I just think that sometimes people need to be shaken out of a kind of stupor that is very comfortable, but just not serving them and not serving the people around them because they're just not really living, you know? I don't think it sounds preachy to wake up. I, You know, one of the things that I'm exploring in my writing these days is that we're we're programmed to sleep as humans. You know, we're, we're made to build routine. And that if you get out of bed, if you not really wake up, but if you become conscious and you get out of bed and you make coffee every morning and then you do this, this, and this, slowly they'll be less, they'll use less brain power and you'll be less mindful of them and aware of them because that's how you save calories. Right? And our bodies are these survival machines. Without realizing it, our bodies are trying to get us to just be as asleep as possible, you know, because that's what's efficient. That's exactly right. But the fact is, is that we're not living in caves anymore. No, we don't need to preserve all those calories. So we can go grab a juice at the local juice bar and fuel up on calories. Yeah, it's that's exactly right. And in some ways, our... Our biology has not caught up to the quantum leaps um, in in cultural progress where we have just, you know, an abundance available to us and our biology hasn't caught up, right? So we're still conserving calories. We're still sleeping and routining through our days. And the fact is there's, we have so much more capacity, so much more capacity. Um, And we're afraid of missing deadlines with the fear that a giant cat will kill us. You you know, like (laughs) we have these fear responses that haven't caught up either. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And the same is true about death, right? Like monkey brain, limbic brain is just trying to avoid death at all costs, right? Death does nothing for evolution. Death is not good for us. So we will do anything to survive. And that's a totally natural, hardwired instinct, you know, and nothing in this book is saying that, you know, we're, we're not trying to eradicate your fear of death or eradicate your that survival instinct. We're just saying you also need to kind of come to grips with the fact that we're all going to the same place. Yeah, we haven't Silicon Valley has, despite trying, not found that magic pill yet. I don't think they will. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a new fountain of youth. Which maybe they'll f- figure out how to keep us alive longer. But We may be prettier for longer. Definitely prettier for longer. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what you think is pretty, I guess. Indeed. Do you have a DNR? I do. Yeah. Yeah. 
And mine is... Um, That's a do not resuscitate. Right. People who don't right. Um, I actually... So the DNR is actually the hospital kind of paperwork. What you have as a consumer just like walking around in the world is an advanced healthcare directive. That's where you state your wishes about what you want for treatment should you have a big medical event like a heart attack or should you have a chronic and debilitating disease. And then you also in that document elect a healthcare agent, meaning someone you trust to speak for you. So if you go out there and a bus runs you over or a big cat gets you <laughs> um, and you can't speak for yourself in the hospital, who's going to show up at the bedside and talk to the doctors and direct your treatment? And sometimes that's not the person who you love most in the world because sometimes that person wants to keep you alive at all costs and can't make those decisions that you want them to make. Yeah, I have a feeling my loved ones would want to keep me alive more than I would want to be alive. Because I've just read how, you know, how horrible it is to come back from CPR. You know, like something like 3% of people are normal after that. Yeah. You know, most people have significant brain damage or uh, defibrillator seems okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's really hard to transport yourself into that situation, right? And yeah. to like actually know what you would want. Like, I mean, none of us can really beam ourselves there. We just don't have that Star Trek power yet. So we have to use our imagination and we have to be really tuned into our gut and say to the people that we love, look, if I seem, if the doctors are, are saying that I am beyond repair, if I am seeming like I am beyond repair, if I cannot communicate and there looks like there's a little chance of my survival, don't have someone pounding my chest. Mm -hmm. It, that does not feel good. It doesn't, it's not doesn't look good to anyone in the room. It's hard for doctors. It's hard for the patient. There's some gruesome stories about doctors training on patients who are, you know, who are far beyond any chance of revival and giving them, you know, pounding their chest for 20 minutes. That's not good for anyone. That's not humane. Yeah. I like to end this way. Normally, it's really obvious where to anchor this question. But again, you're so much more than end-of-life expert. So I really want to leave this open-ended, but maybe you could cue us in on, on where it is. I like to say if I could hand you a phone and at your most vulnerable, your greatest time of need for good counsel would reach you. So you'd pick up this phone and on the other line would be you when you really needed to hear this message. What would you tell that younger woman who's going to become the woman that you are today? And when would it be? Mm. I think about this a lot, actually. I think I would tell her, you are worthy of love no matter what you do in the world. You are worthy of love. I think you grow up often thinking that you have to do things to get love. Mm -hmm. You have to be a certain way. You have to achieve certain things. You have to take care of other people in a certain way, take care of their needs in a certain way to be worthy of love. 
And I think it's taken me until now to really just allow myself to be worthy of love without any of that. I st- I'm still not there, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm doing the same work. That's, that's a photo of me. And I talked to him all the... He knew... What I th- a beauty. He knew a lot about life. He just didn't know it because after... I don't know how old I was, maybe five. But after that, you know, I I picked up some of those things where you feel like, oh yeah, I need to do this to be worthy of love. And yeah, I talk to that kid often. I hope he's listening. Oh, he often he often talks talks back. Yeah, <laughs> he tells me he's proud of me pretty regularly. I'd say that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. My dad really played that role in my life. He was my biggest champion. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, I could move my pinky finger and he'd be like, that's just amazing. Look at how you moved your pinky. And I got really addicted to that. Really addicted to it, like in a Pavlovian way. Like when I would pick up the phone and call him, I would just recite my achievements. <laughs> Here's what I did. You know, here's the grade I got. Here's like all the things I did this week. Aren't I great? And I was just so hungry for his approbation. And so when he died, that left a big gaping hole in my life. And I've had to, I've had to, my husband definitely did not give that to me. Oh, no. (laughs) If anything, it's just the opposite. It's like he knocked me down a peg for good measure. So I have to give that to myself. Yeah, and that's a long, it's a long journey and a long lesson. It sounds like a beautiful journey. Thanks. Thank you for your time here. It's really great to talk to you. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art. In the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution so our patrons are our financial backbone of this product that's how we manage to do this ad free you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human this is the how to human podcast a production of hellohumans.co until next time have a great day